0: All right. Kiddos can be dismissed to Children's Church. Yes, yeah, so I will get your balloon. There we go. You are welcome. Thank you. Is this mic on? Can you hear me or no? No? Hold on one second. How's about now? Yes? Okay. Good enough. It's a small room anyway, right? You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be this evening. I think it's safe to say, um, I think you'd all agree, that we live in a very consumeristic culture, right? Um, Especially in the West, especially in America, uh, I think it would be fair to say that our entire lives even are driven by consumerism. Um, As an example of this, look no further than the holiday that we will be celebrating this very month. And no, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving, I'm talking about the day right after Black Friday, which, as we all know, actually begins now on Thursday. So Black Friday is now sort of Black Weekend that's bled into Thanksgiving itself. So now Black Friday, with the addition of Cyber Monday, is a pretty good picture of consumerism in our culture. Um, that particular weekend uh, will account for 30% of all the retail sales of the entire year. Just in that one weekend. And consumers on that weekend will spend about $90 billion. So about 175 million Americans will go out to stores and spend $90 billion an estimated 32% of those shoppers will start their shopping on Thanksgiving Day. Many of them leaving directly from the Thanksgiving table to go right to the mall. Uh, There was one survey that stated that 51% of Americans say they begin their Black Friday shopping online while sitting at the table at Thanksgiving on their smartphones. So, that, if that is true, that means approximately half of us, while we were sitting at the table on Thanksgiving Day, talking about all that we're grateful for, are on our smartphones looking up the best deals to start spending money. Uh, the average spending per consumer on Black Friday is a modest $350. Uh, It would seem clear that in spite of having a holiday dedicated solely to expressing gratitude for all that we have, now half of it is being spent acquiring more. Consider uh, a few more sobering numbers. Despite making up only 3% of the global population of children, American children consume 40% of the world's toys. 35% of the world's toys are in my kid's room upstairs in my house. At least that's how it feels sometimes. And if you were to walk, well, I can't say walk into that room because that's not possible. Uh, You can't see the floor in there. But if you were to see that room, you would also agree that 30% of the world's toys are in that room. Um, uh, for you parents, I'm sure you can identify with this. Our children are being bred for consumerism from the moment that they start using entertainment. Um, And any parent whose children watch videos on YouTube know that probably half of that time is spent watching videos of other kids opening and playing with toys despite having rooms filled with toys they are watching videos that are essentially just glorified commercials where other kids or or even adults are opening toys showing off all the features and playing with them it is the dumbest most annoying thing ever and the parents in the room are nodding and there are moments where I get so sick of it that I'm like watch a real show or I'm taking that away um, here's some other sobering stats. Nearly 40% of food in America goes to waste. Nearly 40%. That totals about $165 billion a year. We all agree that college is expensive, especially for you college students in the room, you would agree with that. Uh, but did you know that more money is spent every year on fashion accessories? That's shoes, watches, and jewelry than on college tuition, at about a hundred billion dollars a year. The average uh, American household has about eight thousand dollars in consumer debt. Despite being just 12% of the global population, the United States and Western Europe account for 60% of the private consuming spending in the world. So, from the time that we're children onward, Westerners are driven to consume, consume, consume. Now, it's hard to pinpoint when exactly this began, where it started. According to some, this began after World War II. As the nation began to sort of bounce back from wartime, now to a time of prosperity, factories shifted their production from products for the military to products for private consumption. And so the economy began to boom, and the nation began to be driven by profit. And it soon changed from being a fact of life to a way of life. I'm going to put up a quote on the screen by a guy named Victor Lebeau. Victor Lebeau was an economist and a retail analyst in the 1940s and the 1950s. In the 1955 spring issue of Journal of Retailing, which sounds like a riveting read, if you ask me, uh, he wrote an article called Price Competition in 1955. Also doesn't sound that interesting. But what he wrote in that article, I think, could be classified as as prophetic. Prophetic, not pathetic. Let me emphasize that. Prophetic. It could have been written yesterday, because of how accurate it is. So, this is what he said. He said, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige, is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, his hobbies. These commodities and services must be offered to the consumer with a special urgency. We require not only forced draft consumption, but expensive consumption as well. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. Wow. For something that was written in the 1950s, It sure sounds like something that could describe culture right now, driven by consumption, driven by keeping up with the Joneses to a point where he says that the buying and selling of goods become rituals they become almost spiritual actions that we seek our spiritual satisfaction we seek our ego satisfaction in what we consume in what we have in what we get and then he says that we need the things that we get to break down and go bad so that we can go and get more stuff ever pushing forward. I would say that Lebeau paints an incredibly accurate picture of how we operate. It is an all-consuming consumption. So, what does the Bible offer to us to combat that way of life? What kinds of things can a follower of Jesus do to live sacrificially for the Lord rather than living as a completely obsessed consumer? One such biblical antidote that is offered is fasting. Today, we're continuing our series on spiritual disciplines, entitled The Opposite of Epic. Um, If you are new with us or have not uh, been with us during the series, I encourage you to catch up on the podcast. Uh, We've been talking about rhythms and habits for a healthy spiritual life, but not uh, in the sense of having a checklist, things that we can just check off to make sure that we're good little Christians. No, it's actually the opposite. We are not advocating spiritual disciplines in order to earn merit badges for Jesus. We're, we're simply studying these things in order to display ways that the Bible tells us we can fill our lives with a constant, consistent pursuit of the presence of God for the sake of the presence of God. Thus far in the series, uh, we've covered three spiritual disciplines. uh, Prayer, Bible study, and accountability. With each of those disciplines, I've offered a specific challenge. Those being kneeling prayer thrice daily, uh, scripture before phone, and a weekly conversation about your heart and your habits with an accountability partner. Again, if you have missed those, Please go back and listen, uh, because I don't want anyone to walk away from today with the idea that these things are magic bullets, or spiritual life hacks, or the secret to becoming a better you. That would be epic, and we are looking for the opposite. So today, we're going to talk about perhaps the most neglected spiritual discipline of all. which is the discipline of fasting. Um, By a show of hands, how many people in the last five years have heard at least one or more than one sermon on fasting? All right, cool. A couple of you. Uh, For anyone that goes to this church consistently, I will admit, and you probably know, this is the first sermon that I have preached on fasting, on fasting. Probably because this is probably the most neglected spiritual discipline in my own life. This is one uh, that I'm preaching a message that I need just as badly as anyone else. So here's where where we will be going uh, this evening. We're going to look at some of the things that the Bible teaches us about fasting. We're going to look at why it's important. Uh, and what it means for us, and then we're going to finish by talking about how we can actually carry it out. And my hope is that the Spirit will use the word to lead us to a life that, contrary to Victor LeBeau's description, is not characterized by consumption. Sound good? So, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 18. So our passage from today comes from the most famous sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in this passage, is addressing a multitude of people, and the crowd includes members of all levels of society and all levels of religious hierarchy. And so in this sermon, Jesus addresses nearly every spiritual Area, every major spiritual area that would have been important to his audience. And in doing so, he sets a new standard for understanding what the heart of God is in each one of those things. He, he talks about a bunch of things. He talks about our emotions. He talks about our desires and our practices. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about love, generosity, prayer, trust, and faith. He talks about what it looks like to seek the Lord, how we ought to treat other people, and how we ought to build our lives on the right foundation of himself. And so it's in the midst of this sermon that we find these three verses on the topic of fasting. Uh, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, a beautiful read in itself, defines fasting as abstinence from food and or drink as an element of private or public religious devotion. To that definition, I would add the word practice. The word practice, so that the definition reads, abstinence from food, drink, and or practice as an element of private or public religious devotion. So essentially what the word means, what the word fasting means, is that for a period of time a believer abstains from partaking in something in order to devote themselves more fully to pursuing the Lord. Many times throughout the Bible, fasting is closely attached with prayer. There are several places in the book of Acts, for example, where believers are found praying and fasting prior to making important decisions. The disciples of John are referred to as people who often pray and fast. There's a prophetess named Anna, who's talked about in the book of Luke, uh, where it says that she spends much of her time in the temple fasting and In the Old Testament, we find Ezra fasting and praying for the protection of the people. Similarly, Esther prays and fasts for three days in order to seek God's favor and protection from the Babylonians. King David fasts and prays for God to heal his child after his sin with Bathsheba has been uncovered. Nehemiah prays and fasts prior to beginning the mission to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. In preaching repentance to the city of Nineveh, Jonah commands the Ninevites to fast and cry out to God in repentance. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law in the presence of God, we are told that he did not eat for 40 days. Jesus, we're also told, had a 40-day fast prior to the beginning of his public ministry. Paul also refers to fasting a number of times in various ways, and and even lists it as an important practice for combating temptation. So what this tells us is that fasting is a frequently referenced practice in Scripture, wherein every example reveals a deeper connection to God in prayer. So, that leads us back to our passage for today. As we go into this, I I think it should be noted that there is nowhere in the Bible that directly commands us to fast. There's nowhere in Scripture that straight up says, thou shalt fast, in so many words. But that doesn't mean, by any means, that it's something we should neglect. And I am the first to admit that that it is something I have greatly neglected. Notice how verse 16 begins by saying, and when you fast. I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. Jesus assumes that the people he's addressing are at some point going to be fasting the ancients did not neglect this discipline the same way that we do. And so here at the the very beginning, I, I want us to come to a place where we view fasting not as a commandment, but as a wise practice that is assumed in the Bible we ought to implement. So, let's begin to break this down. If you're taking notes, here is point number one. Fasting is a practice that combats consumerism in our hearts. Fasting is a practice that combats consumerism in our hearts. In two separate places in Paul's letters, Paul uses a description of worldly people that essentially boils down to consumerism. You don't have to turn there, but the first example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. And in that passage, he says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So what Paul is doing here is Paul is quoting some of the cultural phrases that the Corinthians use. Cultural phrases that we have are things like YOLO or follow your heart. In Corinth, they had all things are lawful for me. And food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. These were things that they would repeat as, as cultural mantras. And the meaning of that phrase essentially was, if you have any kind of desire, you should fulfill it. If you are hungry for something, then fill your stomach. You ought to have it. Sort of sounds like something we would say in America, right? Right? Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't have or what you should or shouldn't be. You can be whatever you want. Don't let anyone stop you from getting whatever you want. Whatever you are hungry for, it's what you were made for. But Paul opposes that by saying, no, actually, the body was not made to just consume whatever you're hungry for. He says, the body was made to serve the Lord. The Lord is the one that is meant to fulfill every desire that we have. So we're not just created to to fill our hunger with whatever we're hungry for. We're created to fill our hunger with our Creator. Later in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, Paul uses the same sort of stomach analogy with an urge to remember our true purpose. He says this, um, verses uh, 18 through 20 of chapter 3. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So there again we find the same analogy. Their God is their stomach or their belly. Whatever my body tells me it wants, I'm going to give it to my body. That is... Servitude. That is slavery. People will tell you that freedom means living however you want to live, doing whatever you want to do, getting whatever you want to get. But that's not freedom. That is actually bondage. That is being a slave to your desires. Whatever your stomach tells you that you're hungry for, you better run and get it, or you will not be happy. So it's no surprise that the people in this world who are the most free are still the most dissatisfied people on earth. This is why rich, successful people who every day eat at the buffet table of whatever worldly desires there there are still are killing themselves at an alarmingly high rate. It's because the things that their stomach told them they needed in order to be happy never actually made them happy. And now they have it all and realize that they have nothing. And that leaves them without hope. See, the thing is, the stomach is never satisfied. It's, it's why no matter what, you still have to eat every day. You can't say to your stomach, I fed you yesterday. Why are you growling? After it digests whatever you put into it, your body uses the food and however the body needs, gets rid of the rest, and leaves you empty again. That's what Paul uses as an analogy to teach us what it is like to live like a consumer. When your God is your belly, your end is starving to death. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And we are filled with the promise of a hope that is everlasting. That is the first important thing to understand about fasting fasting is a way that we say no god is more important than my desires it's it's a way of saying i will be fulfilled by him not by having whatever i want it's a way of making sure that he stays god and nothing else becomes an idol By saying no to the hunger of our stomach, whether that be a literal hunger for food or or a metaphorical type of hunger for some experience or thing, we're saying, I will not be ruled by my desires. My God is not my stomach. My God is the eternal Father. It's no coincidence that this is exactly how Jesus responded during his 40-day fast in the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan to turn stones into loaves of bread. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Jesus was not saying something silly like, reading the Bible is going to make sure my physical hunger is filled. That's not what he means. It's not as if you go without food and you read the Bible and then your stomach doesn't growl anymore. That's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is something more important, more eternal than a physical hunger, and that is closeness with the Father. There's something I want us to notice about this passage in Matthew chapter 6. When we look at this passage about fasting in verses 16 through 18, notice what comes immediately after those verses. Immediately after, Jesus talks about laying up treasures in heaven. This is not an accident. This is on purpose. It's not like in this sermon, Jesus is just randomly throwing out snippets of wisdom like buckshot. It's not as if he's standing up and saying, hmm, uh, let me tell you about oaths. Oh, and also, let's talk about lying. Oh, uh, fasting, let's get there. No, Jesus is systematically working his way through truth with each section building upon the previous section. So right after he talks about fasting, Jesus then immediately tells people, do not lay up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Jesus is telling us, do not be ruled by your stomach. He is telling us, do not be consumers. Victor Lebeau very accurately tells us that we often seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in what we have, in what we get, in what we consume. That our social standing is determined by our level of consumption. But what happens when we do that? What happens is the envelope is always getting pushed. The the finish line always keeps moving. This becomes a never-ending arms race. Let's say you make a million dollars. Have you arrived? No. Because then you have to keep up with a different set of Joneses who makes ten million dollars. Once you reach that level, that's never enough. Now you have to keep up with the Joneses who make a billion. And then you have to have bigger houses and more cars and more mistresses. And the finish line always keeps moving. Moving. You never arrive. You just keep running on the hamster wheel without ever getting anywhere. Consume, consume, consume. And as the title of a popular James Bond movie says, the world is not enough. There's not enough in the world to fill the hunger. It's in the face of that that Jesus tells us there's something we can do to actually get off the hamster wheel. To lay up treasure in heaven where moths or rust will never destroy it. And that is to abstain. Periodically we fast in order to keep the main thing the main thing. It's it's a way of checking our hearts. It's a way of getting off the hamster wheel, aligning our hearts with the one who can actually satisfy us for all of eternity. Speaking of eternity, that brings us to our second point. Point number two, fasting is abstention that focuses us on eternity. Going back to the passage here, Jesus provides us a very important contrast that speaks to where our heart is focused. The contrast he presents is earthly, earthly reward versus heavenly reward. Look at verse 16. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've received their reward. They're they're fasting for the sake of things like the approval of others. uh, Or they're hoping to win blessings from God for this life. And so when he brings up the right focus of fasting in verse 17, he says the Father will reward you in secret. And then again, immediately he begins talking about treasure in heaven. Verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, there's a a little bit of a misconception here about fasting, and that is that if you are fasting, nobody else can know or your fasting won't work. It's like, you better not let the secret out, because if you let the secret out, then it's pointless. That's not what's meant by this. Jesus is contrasting those who are trying to be seen by others to win their approval and those who are simply seeking God's face. And so he says that the reward that we will receive is the Father and that we will lay up treasure in heaven. The point is, fasting is a way for us not only to combat consumerism, but also to focus on eternity. As Christians, we know that this is not our home. We're not home yet. We have an eternity that is in store for us, an eternity that awaits us. That means that whatever years that we have on earth, 75 or 80 if we're lucky, that is the smallest blip on the radar of timelessness. Um, A guy named David Mathis puts it like this. He says, we fast in this life because we believe in the life to come. We don't have to get it all here and now because we have a promise that we will have it all in the coming age. We fast from what we can see and taste because we've tasted and seen the goodness of the invisible and infinite God and we're desperately hungry for more of him. So we fast in this life because we believe in the life that is to come and that there we will have it all. Um, raise your hand, this is a kind of a silly example, but raise your hand if you have a bucket list. If you have a list of things, whether written down or in your mind, of stuff you want to do before you die. Okay, most of us do. I do as well. Um, A bucket list, again, is a list of things that we hope to accomplish or hope to do before we kick the bucket. Um, And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a bucket list. A bucket list can be a fun way to set goals. It can be a fun way to plan enjoyable things. But There can be a subtle misconception that can sort of sneak into the mindset that underlies uh, making a bucket list. And that is, if I don't do this before I die, I'll be missing out. I'll be missing out on this experience. I'll, I'll have missed this if I die and don't do it. But here's the truth for us as believers in Jesus. We don't ever have to worry about missing out on anything in this world. We don't. Because scripture tells us when it's describing heaven, that our eternity spent in heaven will actually be an eternity that is spent here in a newly created earth. When we read about heaven, we read that God is going to completely restore and renew all of creation, the original creation of Genesis. Plus, he will add more to it. Revelation describes the holy city of Jerusalem, the new heaven, coming down to earth where God will make his dwelling with man. And then the description of the new city with its gates and men coming in and out from the kingdom's of earth so what that means is all of earth will be made new and all of creation will be made new and that is what we will be experiencing in eternity so that means if I don't ever check off swim with sharks in the pacific in the here and now that's okay because in eternity I can experience that imperfection and not get an arm bitten off I'd say that's better. Traveling is fun, and I love to do it. But anything that I don't get to here while I'm alive right now still awaits me in eternity. The the point of this is not to say erase your bucket list. Again, a, a bucket list can be a fun way to enjoy life. The point is to teach our souls an important truth about fasting, And that is the truth that fasting is a way that we put our trust in the Lord that by giving up something right now I'm not missing out on anything. Because whatever I abstain from in this life I have the promise of an eternity that is limitless where joy that is limitless will fill any void that I perceive to have experienced. Jesus calls this treasure in heaven. Fasting is a way that we put our hearts focus on treasures in heaven. Point number three. Point number three. Fasting is not just abstaining from something. It's about replacing something with more of the Lord. It's not just about abstaining. It's about replacing. Abstain from a thing to replace something with more of the Lord. It's evident when we read this passage in Matthew that fasting is not simply about abstention. Fasting is about seeking the Father in heaven. Look at verse 18. You're fasting that it might not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. You are seeking the Father who is in, in secret, Or look at verse 24, after he's talked about treasures on earth versus treasure in heaven, in verse 24 he says, No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So he says, pick a master and then seek that master. So, fasting is not about just abstaining from something. Fasting is about seeking Him on purpose to fill whatever perceived void was created by more of Him. So, fasting is not like some Bible-based diet plan. Um, Some people, for example, do what's called the Daniel fast. And I'm not knocking the Daniel fast, okay? The... The Daniel fast can be a very good thing if done with the right motive. Um, So I'm not bringing this up to throw the Daniel fast under the bus. Um, Don't send me any emails about it. Uh, The the Daniel fast is based on uh, a fast in the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament, which tells us that for a period of about three weeks, uh, during a period of mourning, Daniel abstains from any delicacies, uh, abstains from meat, abstains from wine, and essentially has a vegan diet. So, um, and, and that's a very, you know, oversimplification of it. Um, but I bring this up to say that uh, it's entirely possible to undergo a Daniel fast, which is to only eat a vegan diet without living differently at all during that three-week period, or spend any more time intentionally focused on the Lord. It's entirely possible to do the fast, but yet not replace anything with more pursuit of Christ. And that is not fasting, that is just abstention. Uh, If you decide next week, that for a week you are going to fast from eating meat which if you do that more power to you that would be an incredibly hard sacrifice for me to ever make because to me any meal that doesn't have meat is not a meal it's a snack okay my wife and I had to have this conversation many times during the early years of our marriage where she would suggest something like hey let's have grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch and I'd go uh no there's no meat in that And she's like, so? And I'd be like, well, if there's no meat, it's just a snack. Okay, what's the entree going to have? (laughs) We can do grilled cheese sandwiches as a side, but your boy needs to eat some meat. So, that would be very hard for me. But, if you decided, you know what, next week, I'm not going to eat any meat. More power to you. But, in order for that to be counted as fasting then your meals ought to be turned into prayer times where you are sitting down at the table and crying out to God, God, I really wish I was eating some meat right now. This food in front of me would pair perfectly with steak wrapped in bacon or some chicken or even some smoked salmon. But you know what, Lord, I'm giving this up because I want more of you. Or, or maybe your meal times being communal with your family can be a, a meatless meal where your family discusses what you're looking forward to about heaven, what you're looking forward to about an eternity where you have it all, or, or where you can talk about what Christ has sacrificed on our behalf that's so much greater than this meat that we're sacrificing, or how God fulfills the desires of our hearts more than any, any physical thing ever could. The point of it is that fasting is always characterized by creating a void and then filling that void with the pursuit of God. Point number four fasting is not a way to impress God, to earn favor, or add a special power boost to your prayer. Uh, nowhere in Scripture are we promised that by fasting, we will automatically get what we want. In fact, one of the examples that we saw early on is the example of King David in Second Samuel fasting and praying that his child would be healed. This, of course, was the child who was the product of the adulterous affair that he had with Bathsheba. What we find is is that the opposite of what he prayed actually happened. The child died. So, it's not a guarantee that when we fast, it's going to work. That is the wrong attitude. Fasting is not a cheat code that you enter to get a special power. If you remember earlier on in our series, we talked about the mindset of doing these spiritual things so that they might work and then experiencing some setback and going, oh my gosh, I did X, Y, Z and it didn't work. Well, if we go into something with the mindset of this is supposed to work, what we're saying is if I do this, it will earn God's favor. If I do this, it will get me a special blessing. If I do this, it will add a special power boost. And that's not at all what we are seeking. We've continued, hopefully, to to point out in this series that this is not a formula. It's not as if you can fast, then pray for whatever you want, and then God is just required to give you the thing that you're asking for. Like he's ever up in heaven looking down at us as we pray and going, ah, she did this special dance. I have to give her the Ferrari now. That's not how it works. Right now, the American church has been polluted with the prosperity gospel. And there are so many teachers that are out there trying to teach people that God is up in heaven just waiting for us to unlock his favor. His favor is already unlocked. Okay? If we didn't get that when he sent Jesus to die for our sins, to purchase our eternity, there is no greater favor that could ever be unlocked than that. But how are we supposed to unlock God's favor? Well, you've got to say the right words. You've got to do the right things. You've got to have the right kind of faith in the right amount. And when you do, God has to bless you with prosperity. That's garbage. It's simply not true. Nor is that why we should be pursuing God. If all we're pursuing God for is the favor, i.e. blessings and prosperity, then as we've discussed before, that makes us nothing but spiritual gold diggers. And no one likes a gold digger. Fasting is not about twisting God's arm putting a power up on your prayers. It is about making a sacrifice in order to draw as closely as possible to the Lord. It is about saying to the Lord, you are more important to me than anything else. So, after all that, that leads us finally to the how. Okay, we've talked about the importance of fasting, what it is, what it isn't, why we should do it, how we should understand that. But then it leads to, now how do we actually do it? In the Bible, we find described a a number of different types of fasting. We find uh, what's known as a complete fast, which is to abstain from solid foods, uh, another term for this would be a uh, juice fast. So it's abstaining from food, but still drinking juice. Or there's instances of what's called a perfect fast, which is abstaining from anything except for water. There are luxury fasts, where a person fasts from some particular luxury. Or experience fast, where people fast from things like sexual activity. There's long-term fasts, in the Bible, that lasts up to 40 days and 40 nights, short-term fast that last three days or less. The point of this message is not to dive deeply into every single type of fast that's in the Bible, but simply to give us a starting point. So here's what I think might be a very simple starting point for us to put fasting into our weekly regimen of healthy spiritual habits. Choose one day a week to fast from something sacrificial. Choose one day a week to fast from something that is sacrificial. That could look different for absolutely everyone. It it could be a fast from a meal It could be a fast from social media, uh, from screen time or entertainment, from sex, or anything else that would actually count as a sacrifice. If it is not a sacrifice, it's not really a fast. So, for example, if you're anything like me and you hardly ever drink soda, I'd probably say in a month's time, I might drink two or three sodas in a month. So if I were to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fast from soda. That would not really be much of a sacrifice. I'm not giving anything up. What we're talking about is taking something that's a normal part of your life and laying it down for a day. An an easy example of that could be uh, social media fast every Friday. Fast Friday. And on Friday, no social media. Make it a thing, put it in your calendar, and then, and here's the key, during that time that you would normally spend doing whatever the thing is, say, watching the newest episode of whatever show when it comes out, instead of doing that, you spend that hour in intentional pursuit of the Lord, in prayer and in Bible study. I want to um, include here a special note to mom's. Moms with little kids, I understand that it is very hard to do any of this stuff with a house full of rugrats, okay? When you have many hours of the day, if not almost all of them, being spent with these children who are sucking the life out of you every second and always depending on you for absolutely everything and never giving you any alone time at all, I know that it's possible to look at something like this and say, how on earth am I supposed to even do that? And many of you might think there, if only I could fast for my kids for a day, wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) To this, I would say to the dads, do everything that you can to help your wives, okay? Okay? Be a good teammate. Make sure that you are pulling your weight and giving her some her time. Okay? That's essential. Do everything that you possibly can to serve your family at home. A lot of men have the wrong assumption that as long as they go to work and bring home the bacon, then they can just put their feet up and not have any responsibility. That is not at all true. Okay? It is your job, your calling to lead at home, to serve at home, and to serve your wife and children. So please do that. I say all this to say, in all of this, we understand that there is a tremendous amount of grace. All you can do is all you can do. And sometime, sometimes the best laid plans never actually work out. And you may set out to say, you know what, on Friday I'm going to fast from X, Y, or Z, but then Friday comes along and the kids have a toothache. Whatever it might be. Again, these are not things that we make into a checklist to go, if I do this, then God will love me. We give our best effort, we do what we can do, and we know that God will honor any sacrifice that we can actually make. So to all of us, with all of this being stated, I challenge you again to look at your life and know that this is not my home. This is not where I am satisfied. This is not where I will seek my meaning. My hope and satisfaction is in heaven. So how can I build into the intentional rhythm of my week a periodic time to say, I will abstain and just focus on you because I'm looking forward to the time where all I'm gonna have is all that you offer. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for challenging us with your word, Father. God, I pray that you would forgive me for neglecting this basically my entire life. God, I pray that you would forgive me for not implementing this sooner. Thank you, Lord, for challenging and convicting me with this. God, I pray that you would help me to begin to place this in the weekly rhythm of my life so that I can be more filled with you. And Lord, let it not be about your blessings. Let it not be about favor or prosperity. Lord, let it be about simply seeking your face, having more of you, being more filled with your presence, having a heart that is dripping with the Spirit. Let that be the case for all of us, Lord. God, I pray that your word has encouraged us in the places that we need encouragement, that it has convicted us in the places that we need conviction, and that your Spirit would now use the word to empower us to live our lives totally given over to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Josh will play our final song.